Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. In the brief time that we have today, I just want to talk to you in regards to the title Home, that is not coming, the story of grace. I actually should change this to the title of Coming Home. The story of grace. We talk about homecoming, and um, a lot of times that evokes the concept of of uh, football games and high school and everyone coming back and gathering. And that is something that we want to evoke. People view this place as home. And, and if you're even a guest today, we want to welcome you in and know that you are welcomed here and that you have the equivalency of anyone who's been here 20 years. Um, and so we do have that welcoming concept that we've always tried to evoke with this that has been our fall launch into a new season of ministry. But today I kind of want to emphasize the undercurrent of this whole thing, which is that it's actually an invitation to come home, not to a church, but to something much deeper. And it's the story of grace and your part in that story. Um, We are in a very confused time. This song that Abby just sang, and there was a part in there that I did not hear her sing in rehearsal when the tail end of that when she said that she wants the truth and her voice climbed quite a bit on that. I haven't heard her hit that note before. I think there's something within Abby that's crying out to that. And as one of the people in rehearsal said after hearing the song played, was teasing with her a bit. She says, I know all your best friends, you know, and they are looking for the truth, okay? They are seeking for things. This generation, I think, is in a deeply confused state, and it's understandable because we have a world that increasingly just doesn't make sense, where truth is subjective, where identities shift and change. It's a world that, as I say, just doesn't make sense. I mean, come on. The Lions defeating the world champion... (laughs) Chiefs on their opening day? I mean, what is happening? I don't understand. I'm just, I'm, I'm lost, okay? Um, obviously, it goes much deeper than that. And it goes in large part, actually, to who we are as individuals, whether you're me, whether you're Abby, Jake, or you. Um... Recently, my son Paxton and I were in California, and I've gone out there before, and we fly into San Francisco International, and then we usually will go into San Francisco, and we grab lunch and hang around the waterfront a little bit there, and then we go on down to our target area, which is Monterey, down uh, about two hours south. This time, we didn't do that. We came in, and we avoided San Francisco. And if you've been watching anything of what's going on, and this is not a political commentary, this is just a, a social commentary, um, uh, the, the city of San Francisco has been caught increasingly in what's been referred to as a doom loop. I don't know if you've heard that term. Um, 
ironically, Detroit was one of those who actually kind of manufactured the name. It's when a certain section of manufacturing or a critical aspect of, of the city kind of crashes and burns, and then as a result of that, um, jobs disappear, uh, tax income shrinks, uh, services do too, businesses close, social disorder rises, this causes people to leave, um, commuters and shoppers to bail, and the cycle spirals downward, and it's now referred to in um, social circles as a doom loop, and they're saying that, that while we were in that you know, decades ago, that now San Francisco, an incredibly beautiful city, um, is caught in this doom loop. And um, it's interesting, one article was saying this, they said as they examined this, that the city has, quote, let people do whatever they want. And she referred to it, the sociologist, as the problem. She said it's a let people do whatever they want problem, she said. And so there's a question we can offer. If people are allowed to do whatever they want to in San Francisco, why don't they want to do good things instead of bad? Why isn't the city this wonderful, beautiful utopia instead of the increasingly dark and mangled dystopia it's become? There's an article, there's a, a, a satire, a Christian satire place called Babylon Bee. And they kind of spoke to this issue. And let me read this one to you. It, it says this. Remember, this is satire, okay? It says, a newly released report has revealed that people are following their hearts at record lo- levels with remarkably disastrous results. Quote, people are just being true to themselves. Why is everything so terrible? Unquote, said lead researcher Tim Scottsdale. Quote, it's almost like there is some innate depravity in the heart of man. It's very surprising. Researchers had hypothesized that more people following their hearts would naturally lead to utopia breaking out. Quote, we believed that all people were fundamentally good. And the problem was simply bad societies that prevented people from expressing their true selves, said Dr. Scottsdale. Unfortunately, our thesis that the heart of man is intrinsically good, well, it proved to be really, really false. Like, it's the most wrong anyone's ever been about anything. It it seems like, unlike in movies, following your own heart directly leads to pain and brokenness, otherwise known as sin. Lots and lots of sin. According to sources, researchers realized they hit a snag when they were explaining to a violent anti-Semitic psychopath that he should simply follow his heart. That's when it dawned on us that there was a really awful, awfully similar famous guy that followed his own heart. His name was Hitler, said the research assistant Kelly Lauren. In fact, Hitler was one of the most committed people of all time to following his own heart. We realized that we may have made a slight miscalculation. And then the final thing, at publishing time, researchers stated that their latest results now seem to indicate that no one is good, not even one. Further recommended purposely not following one's own heart, as the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What the writers of that piece of satire are tapping into is what's referred to some as the depravity of man or the nature of man. And what they're referencing actually are two scriptures. One is in uh, um, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, No, not one. You you could almost take it as a question. There is none righteous? No. There's none righteous? No. Not one. Not me. Not you. Not the most saintly person that you can imagine. Um, Jeremiah chapter 17 
talks about Judah's sin, but it might as well be ours. It says, Judah's sin is engraved with a steel chisel, a steel chisel with a diamond point engraved on the granite of their hearts. There's something deeply wrong with us. Jeremiah 17 uh, goes on in verses 9 and 10 and says, The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful or wicked. A puzzle that no one can figure out, but I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Albert Einstein made the comment at one point in time. He said, the real problem is in the hearts and minds of men. Let's include women in that. It's not a problem of physics, but of ethics. It's easier, he said, to denature plutonium, which is incredibly hard to take the radiation and the deadliness out of it and its potential for damage. He said it's easier to denature plutonium than to denounce the evil spirit of men. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, said, if each one of us um, is born without a sinful nature, how do we account for the universality of sin? If four billion people were born with no inclination to sin, with no corruption in their nature, we would reasonably expect that at least some of them would refrain from falling. But if everyone does it, without exception, then we begin to wonder, why? Reinhold Neubauer, another theologian, said, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically um, empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And empirical means based on experienced or based on data gathered in the real world. In other words, we look at those things and we say, this is what we know to be true. We can prove it. We can see it. We can touch it. We can feel it. What this means is that each one of us is a broken individual. It doesn't matter who you are. And that the root impulse we have is that to sin. Now, here's a conflict at the same time. Because according to the Bible, there are two human realities that confront us, two realities of the human condition that confront us. One is that we're made in the image of God. The Scripture says every human being is made in the image of God. There's something innately valuable about who you are. You were made for something special. You were made for a future. You were made literally in the image of God. At the same time, it says that all of us are mired in this sinful condition so in a very real way, we are all born that way. We're all born into sin. We're all inherently and objectively valuable, and yet we're broken in every way there is to be broken. I'm not broken in some ways. I'm broken in every way. And so are you. How our brokenness is expressed, whether it's through sexuality, identity, morality, or something else, is a matter of wading through each individual's circumstances. But regardless, we're all born that way in the sense that we use our free will to go our own way and give full expression to every disposition. God wasn't mistaken in giving us free will. We've been in error in the way that we choose to wield it. You see, this story of grace began way, way back at the very beginning, and we've all been shaped by it. My grandparents moved from Czechoslovakia to Pennsylvania. That changed my future dramatically. My dad moved to Michigan, which changed my future and determined much of it. Can you imagine? He could have ended up in Ohio. <laughs> and then where would I be? I love Ohio. 
sort of. <laughs> Choices made. So way at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God makes men and women. He made them to have fellowship with them, to share the great love that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have had for eternity, the Father always loving the Son, the Son always loving the Spirit, the Spirit always loving the Father. For eternity, there's been this concept of love. There's nothing, no other belief, no other system out there, nothing else that, that has love that is truly eternal because love requires an object. And so if there's never, if, if a singular individual alone, but, but God has always been in this type of intimacy that we can't even begin to comprehend any more than an ant can comprehend my relationship with my spouse. But he wants to share that. And so he creates men and women. He gives us massive freedom. He sets up a beautiful garden and says, you know, there's only one thing in here. Don't touch this one tree. That's it. Because without that, option for free will and for falling. Without that choice, we become automatons. We become robots. We're, there's no true love in that. It's only when we make a choice. And most of us, I think, know how the story goes. Whether it was a real apple or not, or whatever it was, per se, that of the fruit that was there, you know, that Satan gets to, to seduce Eve because he hates God and he hates God's creation. He wants to take that as that is most valuable. And she in turn gets Adam, and out of this, they, they end up becoming aware of their nakedness. And so as God was wont to do, he'd come in what was called the cool of the evening to walk and, and just to, to fellowship with man. But now they're aware of their nakedness. They're aware of, of sin and shame and all the things they weren't before, and so they hide. I think one of the most tragic passages of the whole scripture is, is that imagery of God walking in the garden where so often he'd fellowship and calling out and, and, and Adam and Eve are hiding. He's like, come on out. It's not like I don't know what's going on. It's not like I don't already know what's happened. Come out of hiding. Come here. Let's talk. Let's fellowship again. And they have to confess their sin. And, and, and the one thing about God being righteous and holy and absolutely without sin is there can't be a toleration of sin. With that, there's no, without that, there's no sense of justice. There's no truth in things. So man ends up being cast out of the garden. We lose that place. And, and here's a very interesting hint at the beginning because at the very beginning, there's an animal. The first death occurs for an animal that is killed, and the skins of that animal provide a covering for the man and woman, for Adam and Eve. Our sin requires a death. Our fallen nature needs something to cover our nakedness and who we are. And right at the beginning, that sacrifice is made. It's the first one, the first death, and it's the first sacrifice, but it's not the last one. As, as, as mankind goes on, sacrifices are offered over and over again and into the Jewish system where they'd go into the, uh, to the temple and they'd, they'd offer sacrifices where they did it way back before the temple. One of the, one of the understandings we have of what all this was about comes when the children of Israel are in Egypt, something we're going to study over the next couple of weeks' time. And at one point in time, as the last of the plagues come into play, and I, I know that if you've not read it, you've at least seen the Prince of Egypt. Okay. <laughs> But, but they, they sit there and say, okay, it's the last of the plagues. Nothing else is working, so now death is going to come to the firstborn of every male child in, in, in the land. The only way to avoid it is if you're Jewish, if you take a lamb without blemish and take the blood of that lamb, sacrifice it, and put it on the doorposts. And then what will happen is the angel of death will pass over that house. 
So that's what they do. And so throughout the land where that sacrifice hasn't been made, death comes. But where it was made and the blood was shed, the angel of death comes along and sees that, that the blood of that innocent and it passes over. And so for generations after that, centuries after that, the Jewish people to this day celebrate Passover. And it's that Passover meal that Jesus sits down to for the Last Supper. And he's sitting here, and they're discussing the lamb that was slain with the blood spread over so the angel of death would pass over. And he makes it clear that he is the sacrifice that all these others have been pointing to for generation upon generation that have been looking from way back in the Garden of Eden to that initial animal till now that he is that sacrifice. And he offers to them what we now celebrate as communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Without Sacrifice without death, there's no forgiveness of sin, which means all of us die. But Christ is making it clear in that moment and through others that he's come along to deliver us from that. We have such a serious issue, and no matter what, we can't seem to get away from it. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, um, Paul is talking, Saint Paul, and this is what he says. So the trouble's not with the law, for it's spiritual and good, the trouble's with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, or I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Paul? St. Paul? But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. In other words, I agree that these things should be done this way, and, and I'm not doing right. So... I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Does this resonate with anybody? Everyone should lift their hand, and those that don't, my gosh, are you blind? I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin. There's something wrong with me that's, that's inside here. He says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I go, okay, Paul, we get it. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. And if that's where the scripture ends, this would... I mean, this has already been a pretty heavy message, right? We came to have a picnic, and you're just saying we're all dirty sinners. Yep, 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 me too, okay? Me too. You know, there's a, a guy I heard about one time, a story where this guy walking down the street, and he falls in a hole, and the walls are so steep that he can't get out of it. And the doctor passes by, and the guy shouts out to him, hey, can you, can you give me a hand? Help me out. And the doctor writes a prescription, and he tosses it down the hole and he moves on. The priest comes along. The guy shouts out, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me? And the priest writes out a prayer and he tosses it on down in the hole and he moves on. And then a friend walks by and he says to the guy, he says, Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps into the hole. And our guy says, Are you stupid? Now we're both down here. My friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. 
those of us who are Christians, and this conversation even today, is those of us who have already been in the hole, we've jumped down in this moment to show you there's a way out, and it's not by us. It's the way that was shown to us by Christ himself. Because Paul doesn't end the story with just, oh, what a miserable person I am. He goes on and says, who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? And then in verse 25, he says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans chapter 3. Paul already made a case. He says, we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, no matter how great you are or how small you are, no matter how righteous you appear to be or how broken and sinful you obviously are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard or what's referred to as the glory of God. We all have fallen short. Yet God in his grace, in his grace, something we do not deserve, but he freely gives, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his love, his life, shedding his blood. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and save that which is lost. In John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 3, 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Well, you watch the football games, you know. <laughs> that's a sign that's up there all the time, that whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life. But they forget the 17th verse that follows. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so the truth of the matter is... Yeah, we are pretty screwed up people. As one writer said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. But I don't know all the theology, I don't know all the... Un There's another writer that, that, that I saw recently that was referencing the, the man on the cross. You know, there's three of them up there, and there's two thieves, and they're reviling Jesus as Jesus is dying, but one of them interrupts that. There's something he sees in Jesus that is different and, and, and corrects him and catches him, and, and it says one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. In other words, he confesses and admits his sin. And that's something that needs to happen. We're told today in many churches, oh, just believe and move on and keep doing what you're doing. No, we have to recognize our sin. We need to turn from it. The word is repent. We indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he was saying at this point, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then this incredible line, Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the only guy that we find that Jesus says, you made it. Imagine that. He's the only one of, of, of everything we're in scripture where Jesus says, I imagine a lot of us would like that confidence. But he says to the man, you've made it. And so imagine the guy, he, he dies and he's up in heaven and, and he goes before the angel and he says, what are you doing? And he says, you know, and the, and the question's asked, you know, which is often asked in, in evangelistic areas like that, you know, why should you be allowed into heaven? 
all my good works, all the things I've done, we just found out that's righteousness. It's garbage. It means nothing. Man's nature is twisted and bent, so why should we allow you in? And the guy's like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. And I imagine the angel sitting there saying, well, well what do you know about, about the doctrine of, of the utter depravity of man? I don't know anything about that. Well, how about a justification and sanctification? Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about that. And so the angel's like, okay, let me get my supervisor. So he brings the supervisor over. So what are we going to do with this guy? And Well, you, do you, you don't understand it. Do you, have you even read the Bible? No, I haven't read the Bible. I, I do. Then what, what, by what are you? He says, the man on the middle cross said I could come in. Jesus sacrificed himself. He was a sacrifice that started with the story of grace in the Garden of Eden with people hiding out only to come out and face God and for him to cover their, sin, their nakedness and their sin with the animal skin. Sacrifice offered for generation upon generation, all pointing to Passover, all pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus at that last Passover that he turns into the Last Supper says, I'm the one that everyone's been waiting for. I am God in the flesh. I am without sin. I'm coming to die for you that are with sin so that you need not die. And if you believe in that and believe in me and seek out relationship with your Father, then there's a restoration that happens. And the story of grace, you are now integrated and become part of this story of grace. And here's an amazing thing. Back in those days, the temple had, had a series of progressive steps you could go to. There was the outer court where, where any old Gentile could gather. There was an inner court where the women could gather. There was another further place where only the men could go into because of the time of that, of that, that day and age. And there was another section of area that only the priests could go into. No men or women could go into. So if you're a Gentile, you're like three times removed. And then there was a place that was called the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant that we know is sitting in some case somewhere in a warehouse in Washington. D.C. with Indiana Jones hanging out there, that, that we'll find it again one day, I'm sure. So, so in there, the genuine Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence somehow rested, uh, a priest would go in just once a year and, and would do sacrifice for all the sins of the people, just, just the priest, common people, and certainly Gentiles, which is the majority of us here, couldn't even get close. But when Jesus dies on that cross, when his sacrifice for our sin is made, this this veil, this curtain, this veil that it was like many feet thick and, and 50 plus feet high or so and wide is torn from top to bottom. God rips it in half. And what that means is that any of us, any of you, you don't need a priest. You don't need any intercessors. You have direct access to the Holy of Holies. You can come, as Hebrews says, boldly before the throne of God with all your brokenness, all your sin, all your pride, all your arrogance, all your confusion and looking for truth, we find it in the person of Christ. And in that place, we have direct access and intimacy. We can come out of hiding, be part of the story, and engage with God. The gospel is this. You and I are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. It can destroy us when we get that genuine image of ourselves. Yet at the very time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This morning, there are two stories that I want to provide for you as we close this time. 
One is a story that was familiar to the time period of Jesus. It's an ancient legend that tells of a man who had this wild, impetuous son. The boy became involved with some rough people in um, the village, and they persuaded them to, him to join in with the robbing of the father's own treasury house. And the robbery is over. His friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of what he had done. The young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends. He betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime is that he had brought in this, in this society public dishonor on the family name. In a culture where ancestors are worshipped and family integrity is a sacred trust, this was the worst of all. Broken and deeply repentant, he goes to his father and he begs forgiveness. Graciously, it's granted Shocking everybody. The father calls all the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and return of his son. When all had joined the banquet to the fullest, the father stood, lifted his cup of wine for a toast, but as the son drank deeply of the contents of his cup, he grabbed his throat and he fell lifeless, the story says, across the table. The son had been poisoned. The father, with ceremonial dignity, nodded to the guests. Each in turn graciously and politely bowed to the father as they silently left the banquet hall. All was now put right. The son had paid the price for his pardon with poison. His honor had been restored. The family integrity and honor were reestablished. The unfortunate incident was closed. This was the time period and this was the culture that Jesus spoke one of the most powerful parables of all time. It was the way of the world. You, you sin, you pay the price for it. You, you, you do damage to your family and betray in this way. You don't come home. Or we make you crawl over broken glass in order to do it. But Jesus, this final sacrifice, he talks with the people and we're told that he came to seek and save that which was lost which is you and me. So he tells three parables, and he tells the parable about this, this sheep that was lost and how the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes out and, and struggles over to find that one sheep, how valuable that was. And then he steps it up a bit and he says, there was a woman who loses a coin and she searches diligently. She's, she's in the dirt because it was dirt floors. And so she'd be going through the dirt trying to find this one precious item until she finds that. And then she celebrates with everybody. And, 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 and she tells that story. Each one symbolizing a human being. Something precious that's lost in the dirt. And up until now, they were okay with that. Sheep are valuable. <laughs> Coins, wow. I mean, they're, they're worth a couple hundred sheep. But then he twists everything on its head. He says there was a son one time. And he goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now, which is in that time period, like saying to the dad, I, 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 I like it to be like you were dead now. I know I'll get it when you die, but let's, let's pretend you're dead now. How does that make you feel, dads? We're already the ATM machine. But now we're told, no, I want everything you have. 
Just, just act like you're dead. Amazingly, the father provides it. He actually gives him his portion. The son goes off and wastes it. He blows it all. Crazy living, stupid stuff. He finally has nothing left, and then a famine comes to the land, and so he's, he's stuck taking care of pigs. Now, at this point in time, the Jewish audience is really losing it because taking care of pigs was like not only unclean, like dirty stuff, but it was ceremonially unclean. You can't touch animals like that. It made you unclean, ceremonially, spiritually. And worse, the guy's sitting here going, man, I wish I could just have some of those corn cobs that the, the, the pigs are eating, and I'm so starved, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die here. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. And he breaks down, and he decides, I'm going to go home to my father. And at this point, all the Jewish say, yeah, <laughs> just wait until he comes home to his dad. Just make sure you don't drink anything when you're there. Okay? Because they know the story that would have been common in the culture. He gets it in his head, and he says, I'm going to say, you know, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of the hired hands. I'm not worthy. And as he's trudging towards home, this is what the Scripture says. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, which means he was looking for him. He was looking for him. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. You've got to understand, fathers don't run. Some of it's just because we're old. But in this case, it was a matter of dignity. A father wouldn't run, not only that, but they had robes. We're not talking jeans. They would have had long robes. For the father to have run, he would have had to hitch up those robes and run out like crazy. That's undignified. You don't do that, especially to a son who's betrayed you, wished you were dead, blown all your stuff. No, 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 no. Let's have a banquet and let's all drink some wine and make sure he gets the poison cup. Long way off, filled with love and compassion. It says he ran to his son. We sang a song about God's love running after us. It's based on this. He embraced him and kissed him. And his son begins his talks. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And then he gets interrupted in the middle, but his father says to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so it says in the scripture that the party began. Coming home, a story of grace. It began in the Garden of Eden. It was finished, if you will, the opening lines on the cross of Calvary. Opening up the Holy of Holies, opening up intimacy with us with God, that anybody who would believe, anyone who would recognize their condition, this is the truth, who we are. But the truth also is that there's a hope in Christ and that if we accept that and see that, there's a forgiveness of sin and a release for those things. It begins, though. It starts with facing who we are. That's the beginning. This morning hour, we're going to be finishing up in just a few minutes' time. You're going to go out and you're welcome to be part of a gathering and and uh, um, I don't think there's any wine. It's probably lemonade or something else, and it's all safe. <laughs> and you're welcome to hang with us. Beyond this day, in the weeks and months to come, you're welcome to come and join us.
But this morning, there could be something much more significant than just a picnic or a fellowship or hanging with your friend or having a spiritual moment. This could be the transformation of your life. You see, coming home is the story of grace. And there's a reason why the story of this prodigal son has resonated throughout time and space because all of us, as Abby sang earlier, we're looking for the truth. And the truth is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in recognizing our condition, confessing it before a righteous and holy God, and then accepting his grace and forgiveness in the person of Christ. It's similar to being born anew or born again, which is why they use that phrase. It's something of deep intimacy between you and God. So this morning hour, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. I'm not going to ask you to sign a document. I don't know what sins you've committed. Maybe they're so deep and dark that I don't know. Or maybe you've just lived a great life that you cover yourself and it's the arrogance that you have. I don't know. But this morning is a moment of time. They're going to play a, a, another song here. And then a little bit later we'll all join in and, and, and we'll go on out. But as this song is being played and if the words that have been spoken in Scripture today is speaking to you at all, if there's something tugging on your heart at all, that's what's referred to as the Holy Spirit, then I would encourage you this. This morning, in this time and place, maybe just where you're at, just quietly between you and God, maybe just put your hand out and just say, Father, I want to come home. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of the... Of, of, of trying to live inauthentic life, I just want to come home. This morning hour, I confess my sin to you, my weakness, my failings, what you already know, and this morning, I step out into the light before you. Forgive me. I accept the gift of grace that I don't deserve. I accept that this morning. If that's you, just before the Lord. Father, this morning, we've come for celebration, we've come for food and fellowship, and it's all good stuff. But the most important thing of all is these next few minutes of time. Lord, I pray for individuals in this place now that hear your voice, whether in this room or in the atrium or even on live stream right now, Lord, that as they would confess their sin before you and just simply lift a palm upward in their lap, that you would see and you would know, no one else, but you would see, you would know, that you'd extend your hand of grace, that you'd let them realize that you've been looking for them forever, so long, and that this morning you extend your hand of grace and your forgiveness, Father. In just these few moments of time, we wait on you. If um, during that song and during this time you just responded to God, welcome home. You are now part of the story of grace. It doesn't um, end there. This is just the beginning. I would encourage you to be part of a fellowship that um, believes in the scripture. 
We welcome you here. We have two services, 11 o'clock and next week, 9 o'clock. And we would welcome you. Um, we begin a new series next week that's going to be exploring the book of Exodus and what it means basically to become a people of faith. And it's, it's entitled, Are We There Yet? Um, so we'll begin that next week. Um, you're welcome to join us afterwards. We're going to have prayer here in a moment. Release, uh, I'll let you know our, our service today is a little longer than usual, so don't be daunted by that. Um, next week, the service will be three and a half hours long. Um, <laughs> no, it's generally about an hour long, so you can plan around that. There'll be some people up front here if you'd like to come up for prayer. Um, otherwise, we're going to just cross on out and have some food, some fellowship. Thank you, genuinely thank you for coming and being part of this time for us. It's a celebration. And today, I think, hopefully for you, is particularly a special time. And we thank you for coming and being here. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, we thank you that even though we've betrayed and walked away from you, Lord, that you have not abandoned us, that you've been constantly on the lookout for us, and that, Lord, you literally would just run after us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace in allowing us to be part of that story. Continue to speak and guide us, we pray, Lord. We ask your blessing upon this food and this fellowship that we're about to partake of. Guide us through the remainder of this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.